You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hello, everyone. My name is Bill Banks. It's a pleasure to greet you. I am the chair of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And on behalf of the committee, we're extremely pleased and proud to be a part of this important webinar, whistleblowing in the intelligence community, legal and practical challenges. Uh, we have a wonderful mix of panelists today for this particular topic, all of who, whom have played significant roles in the whistleblowing process. Michael Atkinson, over the course of two decades, Michael worked at the Department of Justice in senior positions where he prosecuted and, and supervised high-profile criminal matters. His last stint in government was serving as the IC Inspector General at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and he's now the co-lead of the National Security Practice at Crowell and Morning. Joel Brenner also served as a prosecutor at Justice, a senior counsel at the National Security Agency, and then as NSA's Inspector General. He also managed his own law firm and is currently a senior research fellow at MIT's Center for International Studies. Jason Kleitenik, during his time in government, he also served in senior legal positions at the Department of Justice and at the Department of Homeland Security. His most recent government position was as the general counsel at the office of the director of national intelligence. He currently leads the national security defense and intelligence team at Holland and Knight. And finally, Mark Zaid, a DC-based attorney who has had a long career. He's handled cases involving national security and has represented numerous intelligence and military officers and whistleblowers. Also of note, in 2017, he co-founded Whistleblower Aid, a nonprofit law firm that provides pro bono representation to whistleblowers. And what we're hoping to do today is to look at increasing the understanding of the various roles that lawyers play as the government counsel, as private counsel, and as an inspector general, as well as the role that the intelligence oversight committees play in this process. And also to gain a greater understanding of the various pathways that whistleblowers can take and what the pros and cons of those pathways are. So I'm going to start uh, the ball rolling with a question on, from a legal standpoint, what is a whistleblower and how do you as a lawyer distinguish a whistleblower from a leaker or a person with a personal grievance, a personnel grievance? Mark, do you want to start? Sure. Since we are a legal panel here, it is important to talk about the legal distinction as to what a whistleblower actually is by law. In dealing with national security whistleblowers and particularly classified information, you cannot, as a whistleblower, if you want to be a legally protected whistleblower, disclose the classified information to unauthorized third parties, therefore making a distinction between leaking the information illegally to a journalist. Whether or not that is viewed as a good thing or affects any change, whatever that might be, they are not protected as a whistleblower. And the U.S. has very vibrant laws on paper. We can talk about whether the system works or not, but on paper, to be able to report some sort of gross misconduct, violation of law, rule, violent, whatever, there's a whole litany of things, some of which make it very difficult to actually figure out what this is. And the process by where you provide the information also makes a difference. And I want to point out really importantly, the individual has to have a reasonable belief that there has been some sort of violation. They could be wrong. Being wrong is fine. 
and oftentimes, quite frankly, they probably end up being wrong, to be quite truthful, even in my own representations. But you can be one who advocates for civil disobedience or be a dissident, whatever word you want to attribute to it. But in leaking classified information, which is how we'll use that term, that is not the equivalent of being a whistleblower subject to any lawful protections whatsoever. Joel? The distinction that Mark is drawing is terribly important. One reason that we have the whistleblower protections is to avoid leaking. We've created a way in which someone with a genuine concern can elevate that concern to somebody outside of the management structure rather than leak it. When a person leaks instead, and sometimes we like that and sometimes we don't as private citizens, you are actually engaging in civil disobedience. The difference between being a common criminal and being a civil disobedient is whether you stand for the consequences of leaking. That's why we regard Martin Luther King as an important civil disobedient because he explained himself through a letter from the Birmingham jail not from a press conference in Moscow. We have not only a distinction between a whistleblower and leaking, but we have a distinction between criminal leaking and what all of us would recognize in a long tradition in, in the West, going back to Socrates, coming up through Martin Luther King of civil disobedience, but they're not all the same thing. To go to the next issue, there are very distinct roles for general counsels, inspector generals, private counsel, the oversight committees. Could you take a little time to talk about what role you played, what your duties and obligations are in that role, and then have a discussion on what are the advantages and disadvantages of going down a pathway to private counsel, to a general counsel, to an IG, or to the oversight committees? Uh, Michael, do you want to start on that? Sure, thank you, Don. And first, let me just thank the ABA and its Standing Committee on Law and National Security and the Council on Intelligence Issues for the opportunity to speak here today on this very important topic. The role of an IG is broadly speaking to, to seek out and try to prevent waste, fraud, and abuse in the programs and activities that the IG oversees. Currently, there are over 70 inspectors general in the federal government. Uh, half of them, like me, are or were presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed, and the other half are designated by the agency that they oversee. IGs by law are supposed to be independent. They're also supposed to be nonpartisan and selected without regard to political affiliation. IGs have dual reporting responsibilities, which is important to keep in mind because they report not only to the agency director, but they also have reporting obligations to Congress. And IGs play a very important role when it comes to whistleblowers. And whistleblowers, as you've heard, are extraordinarily important in the intelligence community. And that's for this reason, because of secrecy, because of the justified need for secrecy in the intelligence community. The intelligence community is largely effective because it's secret. So what that means is that there are very few Americans who will ever have access or knowledge to the highly sensitive and highly classified programs that the intelligence community is responsible for. And so whistleblowers in the intelligence community can have a legal obligation, an ethical obligation to speak up when they see wrongdoing and to speak up in lawful ways, as we've heard, as Mark and Joel were talking about. And the challenge has been in the intelligence community, who will watch the watchers because of how few people have access to that 
that class of information. Whistleblowers clearly are very important watchers in the intelligence community, as are inspectors general. Because for classified information, if a whistleblower wants to report classified information, wrongdoing involving classified information, inspectors general are one of the few authorized recipients of that type of complaint. And if a whistleblower wants to disclose that alleged wrongdoing involving classified information to Congress, to the oversight committees, then the first place the whistleblower has to go is an inspector general. And so it's very important that whistleblowers trust the process and that IGs are trusted assets as well. The fact is over the last 20 years, the laws that have protected whistleblowers and that have protected inspectors general have been strengthened and they've been strengthened on a bipartisan basis. It's just that the Ukraine whistleblower uh, matter put those laws really to the ultimate test. But Joel, as a former IG, what, what did I miss in terms of the role of the IGs? I, I don't think you and I disagree about, the, about this reporting the Congress business, but I'm not sure I agree with the way you said it. I mean, you were in, a, in an especially difficult position, and the country can thank you for having done such a great job in, during that whistleblower event with Ukraine. But you spoke about the IG's dual reporting to Congress. But as we've talked about offline sometimes, you know, when the original statute, the whistleblower, the IG statute in the late 70s was drafted, it required IGs to report directly to Congress. And the Office of Legal Counsel and Justice thought that was unconstitutional. I think that would, I agree with that. And so it was changed so that that was why you had to give your report directly to the acting DNI rather than directly to Congress. I, I want to just emphasize that IGs are not free agents. They are employees of the executive branch. We all know that as a practical matter, IGs do have reporting obligations to Congress, that Congress will often, through the Intelligence Authorization Act, require the IG to spend lots of resources, maybe half the office's resources, on reports to Congress. And if you don't do it, your budget gets whacked. So as a practical matter, IGs do report to Congress. And I think that's probably what you meant. But uh, I just wanted to draw that distinction because it's a very important one. No, I, I totally agree. And one of the challenges with the Ukraine whistleblower matter or any whistleblower matter for an IG is that an IG also has to operate within the rule of law. And we're, you know, you're no, you might be independent, but you're not independent of the law. And so it is very important to keep in mind that whatever those reporting obligations are to Congress and they're real, they also have to fit within executive privilege and the constitutional authority of the executive branch. I'll, I'll take that as a segue, Michael. Thank you for that introduction. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I was thinking about what is the role. We obviously talked about this and, you know, first and foremost, you know, we, the, the, the general counsel's lawyers, agency counsel, we, of course, do not represent anyone, right, in their individual capacity. You know, who do we represent? Well, we represent our duty is to the United States to uphold the Constitution. Who do we advise? We advise um, leadership within the agency. And as a practical matter, um, because nothing, nothing in the intelligence community is ever easy or simple, we work with everyone, which, which I view to be a good thing. And so that would include working, you know, closely with, with um, the IG, Michael, and, and your office on a variety of matters. 
It means working closely with the leadership of the agency to make sure that they have situational awareness of what's going on. It means working closely with the whistleblower council, making sure that, you know, always mindful. Again, we don't represent the whistleblower, of course, but, you know, first and foremost for us, a red line is always protecting the identity of the whistleblower. Things are happening behind the scenes to provide other assurances to the whistleblower, sometimes even providing security to a whistleblower. And then it also means uh, working closely with our oversight committees. For the lawyers, I, I think the role is in what we always talked about um, in my office was to always you know, play things straight, do the best we can, try you know, not to get caught up in the politics, but, but also always be extremely uh, mindful of and sensitive to the fact that, again, we do have these very special relationships with our oversight committees. And then the, you know, the other note to, I made to myself is just you know, no, no problem is unsolvable. You know, you, you may get presented with, with a legal issue or, or a practical or a logistical concern. And, and so I guess I would just say, you know, this being Washington, always make sure that you're answering calls, that your door is always open. And it's um, just incredibly important to work well with others. Mark, I'd like to hear your views of private counsel. And we got a question that hopefully you can answer when you talk about your role, which is what happens when the whistleblower comes to you first seeking representation before making a disclosure to a counsel's office or the IG, how does attorney-client privilege play in? And also the whole issue of classified information and sharing that with a lawyer prior to making the disclosure. The role of private counsel can be very complicated and difficult for the whistleblower to navigate, especially if they don't know where to go and how to do it, which quite frankly is generally most of them. And there are very few lawyers, private lawyers, who hold security clearances. As someone who, again, never been in government, I have to have a clearance at times because perhaps my client's identity is covert. Their affiliation with their agency is covert. The information in question, obviously, very often is classified. So uh, I'm one of the few who has that active security clearance. Now, that doesn't mean the client can just come to me and spill all their secrets. There is a longstanding battle that I have with pretty much every agency in the U.S. government about whether or not a client can provide me classified information. Need-to-know determinations, which everybody who has a clearance knows, you know, that's how you determine. Can you tell your buddy walking down the hallway, hey, how you doing, Joe? What's new? You know, what do you tell them right then and there in rendering a need-to-know determination? So typically, the client has to first clear with the agency that we are to be cleared. And even getting cleared in the case may mean I only know where the client works, not what the information is. And then again, we steer the client through the process of what to do, how to do it, what, where to do it. And in fact, in the ICU Ukraine case, I came into it five weeks into the case. And whistleblower aid, one of the things we're trying to do is actually work more cooperatively with the U.S. government and the agencies, because we see our role, quite frankly, as identical, at least with the IGs. The IGs role, as was described by Joel and Michael, right, is to investigate the wrongdoing. And if it's wrong, meaning it turns out not to be substantiated, that's fine. We're just trying to represent the interests of the client to bring forth the allegation and have it thoroughly investigated wherever it ends up being at the end of the day. 
there is a lot of distrust out of the about the process um, due to cases, due to the way the press portrays um, the process. So what are the sources of that distrust that many employees have and what can be done to overcome that? I think one degree of the, the level of mistrust or distrust, and there are ways that this can be resolved and it will differ from IG to IG. One of the things that causes a lot of distrust and frustration among the clients is they file a, a complaint with the IG's office that they obviously believe uh, in reasonable good faith has merit. And like I said, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But they oftentimes don't learn what the outcome was. And they perceive that often, generally speaking, as if nobody took their concerns seriously. That creates an, in, an insubordinate attitude in some of them. Now, there are Privacy Act violations, obviously, that if there was wrongdoing determined and someone was individually disciplined, there are laws that protect all of you guys from in the government from revealing that information. But there's got to be some mechanism of being able to share with the complainant that what they said, what they revealed, was taken seriously. And, and this is why we either did find something, but we can't share or we didn't find something, and this is why we didn't find something. That very often has been, I think, what uh, has led to a lot of the distrust and why then contributes to leakers. Ed Snowden or any number of, uh, of those who became leakers, all of whom I, I do believe could have been avoided. I think, Mark, to your point, and and Michael, welcome your views too, of course. But one of the challenges, you know, so communication is so important. These matters, they actually feature, you know, real human beings. And, and because of that, there are all sorts of complexities. There are legal issues, of course, but also, you know, always keeping in mind that we are talking about people. So there's a tension, maybe, on one end, reading in the uh, complainant or whistleblowers to everything that is happening so that he or she understands that that concern is being taken seriously, that is being acted upon, is being reviewed, but on the other end, respecting the rights of the person who may be the subject. I just want to follow up on this point about communication, because I do think it is critically important, both as a, whether you're an inspector general inside the government or corporate counsel, it, it really is important uh, to be as truthful and as transparent with a whistleblower. You know, the law allows, as your, your organization's core values allow, because it's truth and transparency that will generate trust in the system. And Jason's right though, it's extraordinarily complicated, um, particularly when you have a whistleblower not complaining about a program, but complaining about another uh, person or another personality. But I also wanna add in terms of trusting the process, you know, clearly whistleblowers have to trust that their identity will be protected. And that's the legal obligation of the inspector general, but they also have to trust the political process. And that's why, the bipartisanship of whistleblower laws and protections is so important that whistleblowers will trust that even in extraordinary matters, uh, they, they can trust that the process both in the executive branch and uh, in Congress will work as intended. I believe that the only thing worse for no hope than a whistleblower uh, is, is false hope. So it's important that not just those in the executive branch, but also those uh, in Congress remain consistent in word and deed in terms of these whistleblower protections. We talked about the transparency required when dealing with the whistleblower. Um, someone asked the question of, 
can you improve trust in the process by being more transparent with the public? Is it ever possible to release more information about these complaints to the public? And two, what should the government be doing to clarify in the public's mind the difference between a whistleblower and a leaker? Well, I will say that the IGs in the intelligence community have, have started doing public uh, semi-annual reports. Before they were all, they just did classified versions. My former office was one of the first, if not the first, to do a, an unclassified semi-annual report. I know that the NSA IG is doing that as well. And I think that's important because it will give numbers, at least in terms of the number of whistleblower contacts, the, the types of investigations that are underway. It's really difficult to, to go into the substance of complaints it's easier if they've been substantiated because then there's generally an investigation, there's findings, there's recommendations, and those, those should be publicly uh, disclosed uh, to the extent they can be consistent with classified information. But for the unsubstantiated complaints, that, that's really hard uh, to disclose much about that because you know, you've got the privacy rights of the person who was, who was the accused and it was not substantiated. Uh, so that's, hard, that's harder. But I do think the intelligence community IGs have gotten better over the past couple of years, especially in, in releasing uh, unclassified versions of their seminar reports to give some transparency to the types of complaints that are coming in. And, and keep in mind that whistleblower complaints are important, not just for that one complaint, which can be incredibly important, but keep in mind that there are the complaints coming across the intelligence community. And uh, the IGs you know, work collaboratively to get those complaints, to aggregate those complaints, to find common problems, common, common issues, common corrupt contractors, for example. So, that, so the complaints are very important, not just for the, their own signal, single complaint, but also because of the way data these days can be aggregated. And so that's why we want to encourage Joel's right. He had said anonymous complaints are incredibly difficult to investigate, but we still want to encourage anonymous complaints because some information is better than no information. And, but whatever that information is, just follow the rules and, and stay within the rule of law. We've gotten a number of questions about retaliation. And just to summarize them, reprisal, what form does it normally take? And are there ways to get better at protecting uh, whistleblowers from retaliation? And does your public report include information about reprisal allegations? So here's the best way to minimize reprisal, and that's to protect the identity of the whistleblower. Because you can't reprise against somebody if you don't know uh, the identity of the whistleblower. So that's why uh, confidentiality of, of, of whistleblower's identity is so critically important. In terms of re uh, retaliation complaints in public reports, yes, if that's been substantiated, I believe that those uh, that type of information is reported in the unclassified versions. I don't have data or I don't remember data about the most common forms of reprisal. I will say that what I saw um, in terms of government employees um, ran the gamut from firing, to denial of bonuses, to denial of promotions. It's the whole gamut. And then in terms of contractors, it's different because what, what you see with contractors is you see someone's contract not being renewed when you know they might otherwise have gotten renewed but for a complaint. And so then you have to look and see whether it was the, the termination of the contract was in any way tied to the whistleblower complaint. Yeah, I'm, I'm a panelist. Of course, I'm supposed to be answering questions, not posing them. But, but Joel, your, your comments, you know, for me, raise the question of, you know, as an IG, you know, what happens if someone comes to you in good faith and brings allegations to your attention? And then is the process 
uh, moves downfield, that person, for whatever reason, whether it's fear of reprisal or just, quite frankly, having second thoughts about this whole thing, says, you know what, I'd like to kind of back out of this. I'd like to withdraw my concern, withdraw the complaint. You know, as an IG, do you have an obligation to continue to review the allegations? Do you have an obligation to, can't think of another way of saying shutting things down? How would you, how would you handle something like that? It's just like a problem a prosecutor faces when a witness decides that I want to testify. In a case, in some cases, if that witness doesn't want to cooperate or testify, the case goes away, the, the complaint goes away. In other cases, when somebody brings to you an allegation of an irregularity and you're persuaded that the allegation has merit, but the complainant doesn't want to cooperate anymore for whatever reason. And I have to say, I've never, I don't recall encountering this problem, Jason. But in that case, yes, you have an obligation to do your best to get to the bottom of it. You may not be able to without that person's help, but you have an obligation if you think there's a real irregularity there to do your best to uncover it. Yeah, I agree with, Jay, um, with Joel. And, you know, having been a, a former prosecutor to, uh, to go into the IG world, I can't remember. I, I mean, I do remember a case, I'm not going to talk about it, where the whistleblower started to get cold feet, and um, and there are ways for IGs to to pick up the ball and continue to run with it, either by turning that investigation into a programmatic review, for example. So you you might not be looking at one specific person, or but but look at the program or the activity more broadly and try to try to mask what motivated that review. Um, but if the problem is serious enough, um, I think you just have to. It is. It would be very, particularly in the intelligence community, again, where there really aren't uh, very many ways to, you know, to bring problems to light. It would be very difficult as an IG in the intelligence community to turn a blind eye to a, to a, to serious wrongdoing because uh, the complainant, whether you know, for for probably for all the right reasons, started to get cold feet. I think that's where your independence and your own legal obligations as an IG would, you know, probably require you to 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 keep looking and uh, to try to figure out whether that there was actual wrongdoing and, and how to correct it. On the subject of reprisal, as Michael said, I mean, anyone who just thinks of any type of employment situation can come up with what would be reprisal. You know, it would be pretty routine and standard that, that anyone as a lawyer can think of as to what could comprise reprisal. And it probably would be remiss not to mention what exists within the intelligence community now by way of laws, because the Obama administration strengthened there's still a lot of room for reform and improvement, but strengthened the situation by issuing what we call PPD-19, Presidential Policy Directive 19, which was then transformed into ICD, Intelligence Community Directive 120, that talks about, for the first time, retaliation on security clearances if you're a whistleblower. But it talks about that the clearance decision, the adverse clearance action, is the sole basis, if I'm remembering my language correctly, the sole basis for the retaliation. And the problem with that is it is so easy oftentimes to come up with a pretext for a security clearance action that seems separate and apart from the whistleblowing activity that we can't do much about it. And I'm not aware, I'm trying to think if I've invoked it, I don't think we've come up with anything yet where there's a case that I know of publicly that has been able to show uh, that type of retaliation. But let me give you one example that goes to 
what we were talking about earlier on an answer to a question about transparency and some of the distrust that is still created. Uh, I mentioned my colleague, Andrew Bakai, who is a whistleblower, and he was at the CIAIG's office when he became a whistleblower on a matter that related to the DNI IG's office uh, before, I think, Michael, that you were there. I'm not, I'm not sure, timeline. Because of a conflict of interest with those two offices, the case went over to the Department of Homeland Security for the first time under PPD-19 and ICD-120. And one problem of the system, four years later, it took four years to investigate this for a variety of reasons why, and it was substantiated. And in August of 2019, just as we were getting started on the IC whistleblower case, there's a report, a one paragraph summary issued by DHS IG saying that they substantiated that CIA IG had retaliated against Andrew. Have we seen the report? Andrew and I did because we were cleared to read it. But we've been suing for two, almost two years under FOIA to get this report issued publicly so everyone can see. That's not how the system is supposed to work. So there's a real life example of even when it was substantiated, an agency is still withholding the information by claiming it is classified rather than coming up with a redacted version that would allow individuals to understand the system. And, and that goes to, I think, the distrust. Now, luckily, it's Andrew and I who are involved. So, you know, we know the system, we keep working on, it's not dissuading us from helping whistleblowers. But if that were just a routine employee at an agency, you can imagine how they would feel so frustrated and disenchanted with how the system works. Thank you, Mark. Well, I wanna thank all of the panelists. You were absolutely wonderful. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.